Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And as always, uh, any questions you may have, any comments, concerns, uh, needs, please do not hesitate to come and find me or any one of the other elders after service is over. Uh, we're here to serve you. And, and talking things through is one of the ways by which we can. And, and I know we say this almost every week, but again, just by way of reminder, we are here for you and willing and wanting to help you in whatever appropriate way that we can. Now, at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you, and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 22 and verse 39 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 882. If you are using a church Bible, page 882, Luke chapter 22 and verse 39. And before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Oh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship and that we can gather together so freely like this. And now as we come to your word, would you help us, oh God, and that we'd be humble, uh, contrite in spirit, that you'd help us to tremble at your word, that you might look upon us. Would you use this passage under the power of the Holy Spirit to help us see the glory of Jesus Christ all the more clearly and wonderfully, uh, accurately and powerfully, that more and more he might uh, become everything to us. We ask that you would save by your grace those who may not know you and that you would continue by your grace to save us who do. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We come to a text this morning which is one of a great agony where we have the Son of God on his knees uh, wrestling in prayer and, and bleeding through his pores. It's an image of Jesus contained within just a handful of verses uh, but of which is mountainous in significance as we get to peek uh, behind the curtain, so to speak, of the conflict within him. We rarely get to experience in such explicit detail what goes on within Jesus. And here we witness this inner turmoil inside the heart of our Savior uh, with the cross before him and that crucifixion uh, breathing down his neck like this. We get to experience his inner attitude in the anticipation of it, and we get to listen to his private prayer to the Father prior to carrying the cross. And it's a scene that we are perhaps not really used to. I mean, this is Jesus who has faced the raging seas and falls asleep in a boat through it. This is the one who endures hardship at every corner, uh, experiences rejection by his family, betrayal by a close friend, uh, was personally assaulted by the devil himself, 40 straight days going without food. And this is one who has had murderous attempts made against him again and again unsuccessfully, experienced demonic opposition, not just by one demon, but a legion of them at a singular event. And never do we find so much as a single hair out of place. And we're so used to Jesus' calm composure and this above-it-all kind of disposition. We're used to seeing this unwavering poise that even when the world is set against him, it doesn't rattle him. Little kids still want to run into his arms. And the worst of sinners as well. I mean, this is what we're used to. This man of granite with the heart of a child who never seems to flinch no matter what he finds within his path, all of which makes what we witness in this garden all the more potent by comparison. Because we've never seen Jesus 
in agony like this until we enter into Gethsemane. And so I think uh, there is a reverence, of course, that we must come to every passage of the Bible with, but, but here it is uh, even more so, uh, one of gravity and solemnity, uh, which is appropriate as we come to study these eight verses. We, we get to see a side of Jesus that we may not be used to seeing at all. We begin in verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Before we witness what we are not used to seeing in Jesus, we first observe here what we are used to seeing in Jesus. And here that's two things. One, that he's moving toward the cross and not veering from it. And two, he carries with him this great concern for the souls of his people. He is going to the place where he will be arrested and taken away to be crucified. He's not trying to avoid it. And our Savior seems to be more concerned for the well-being of his people more than he is even concerned for himself. That's what we're used to seeing. And so first, he's moving toward the cross, not veering from it. And it was earlier in verse 15 that Jesus had earnestly desired to eat the Passover with his disciples and to really transform it into what we observe today in the bread and in the cup. His own body and his blood is going to be given, and Jesus wants that earnestly with all of his heart. He's everything that the original Passover lamb was just merely a shadow of, that we might be covered and protected by the blood of the innocent from the judgment of death. Jesus, earlier this evening at dinner, he's eager for that. And in these opening verses, we see much of the same. His arrest is coming this night. Judas has already left to lead Jesus' enemies to this very garden that he frequents. I mean, if you're going to die a miserable death, maybe you go somewhere else for a few hours to delay uh, what it is that's coming. Maybe go to a different garden, at least to catch your breath. I mean, at least to do something, anything else other than what is going to occur right here. It would be entirely understandable if Jesus merely sought to delay the events of this evening, even for just an hour, even for just a little bit of me time. But we see right away that Jesus is not trying to hide. Nor is he trying to conceal himself, but he goes boldly to the very spot where he will be arrested and taken away like a criminal, though he is not one. There is not any kind of elusiveness here. And we see that this hour coming and this evening arriving is something that Jesus at this point is really grasping for. None of this is happening against his will. Jesus moves to that cross because this is what he wants. That's first. That's what we're used to. Secondly, we notice also Jesus' deep concern for the souls of his followers and selflessly at that. I mean, Jesus is moments away from entering into the most suffering creation has ever witnessed. And what is his concern prior to it? His people. Jesus wants his disciples, their souls, to not be destroyed by the temptation that is to come. Jesus wants his disciples to be neck deep in prayer, for that's the only way by which we can overcome. And which Jesus will demonstrate this very truth within his own life in the next few verses where we get to find him in prayer. But he knows here that his disciples are in danger and therefore they need to be in prayer. Now Jesus has been very upfront, uh, candid, very open and his followers haven't really allowed all of that to sink in. He speaks about himself giving his own life and they argue about which one of them is the greatest. 
Jesus tells Peter, you're weaker than you think. You're going to deny me three times. Peter doubles down. I'm ready to go both to prison and death for you. I mean, these guys have no idea how difficult these next hours are going to be. They are chopped liver, so to speak. If they're going to try and rely upon their own strength and, be, and, and rely upon their own perception. And so where does Jesus direct them to? He directs them to pray so that they may not enter into temptation. Now, what is this temptation? Luke here, Jesus here doesn't define it explicitly. But in the next hours, it could be the temptation to let go of the Jesus they held so tightly to. It could be the temptation to be filled with despair because of these events unfolding real time. It, it might be unbelief that all they were sure of will become really shaky ground for them. It may be that they, with their own sets of hopes and dreams tied to this Jesus, that as these hopes and dreams shatter, they will only view God's love and goodness through the lens of their selfish ambition. And their suffering and anxiety would cause them to interpret this whole scenario as if God had somehow lost control or that somehow Jesus is not who he says that he is. The temptation is not explicitly defined here. It may be a collective whole of all of the above and more, but their souls are in danger. And when our souls are in a precarious position like this, we must be a people of prayer. You know, everything that the disciples hoped would happen this week, it's not going to happen. And everything that the disciples are dreading to happen is precisely what is going to occur. One of their own is a traitor. The man they left all to follow, taken into custody, tortured, shamed, stripped before his murder. The crowds that seemed to adore him, there would be crowds instead that yell, crucify him. Everything they wanted in these next few days isn't going to happen. Everything they don't want, but dread instead, is going to happen. And it's in these moments that our souls can be shaken to their very core when what you hope for is lost and what you dreaded is here. And in those moments, we will enter into a battle of our will versus God's own will. And it's a battle by which we will be utterly damaged unless we watch and pray so that we will not enter into temptation. And a prayer takes us to a place we need to be. Uh, to be calibrated to something higher and, and wiser and more powerful and all-knowing than our little eyes and our minds and small perspectives. Where do we go when we're afraid? Where do we go when the way seems to be, to be so scrambled? I mean, we must go to prayer. It's so simple that even little kids can know this and so neglected that even those within the church for years and years may not ever and truly bend the knee in a way that confesses that the way of my protection is first, this way of prayer. And isn't this a pattern even in the Lord's prayer? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I mean, there's both a request and a confession that sin and evil is somehow a greater threat to us more than sickness and poverty. And that the Lord's grace and power is what we need in these very moments. And, and we'll look at this idea of battling wills within prayer as we look to Jesus' prayer in the garden. But again, notice, Jesus' concern here for his followers, it seems to even swallow up his concern for himself. None of them are going to die on a cross at night. None of them are going to be arrested, beaten, and tortured. None of them. And what does Jesus say? Does he say, pray for me? You guys got it easy? Pray and fast and weep for me. 
No, we have this wonderful glimpse into the selfless heart of our Savior and this beautiful care that he has for his own, that they should pray not for himself, but for themselves as if they are somehow his premier concern. I mean, who loves us like Jesus loves us? Listen to Alexander McLaren. He never asks for men's prayers, but he does for their love. He thinks of his sufferings as temptation for the disciples and for the moment forgets his own burden in pointing them the way to bear theirs. Did self-oblivious love ever shine more gloriously in the darkness of sorrow? And this is really the Jesus that we've grown so accustomed to, carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders and preoccupied with the wellness of his followers. And so here we have the one who cares for his disciples at cost to himself and the one who moves unflinchingly so towards that cross. This is what we're used to seeing in Jesus. And then we come to a scene that we are utterly unused to, and it is one of great agony and inner conflict and turmoil. We continue in verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. This is not the poise and the composure and the calm confidence and selfless giving that we are used to seeing. This is Jesus on his hands and on his knees, praying and sweating and bleeding through his skin, asking the Father, is there any other way beside the cross? Can you remove this cup from me? Why? Because I don't want it. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 tells us, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Jesus wants the cross, but he doesn't want the cross. He loves that the appointed hour has come, and he hates that the hour has come. What's going on here? You know, I don't know if you've ever tried a cold plunge pool. I think that's a pretty big trend right now where you submerge your body into this pool of really cold water for X amount of minutes and you supposedly derive all of these health benefits from it. And some of these pools are so cold that there are literally ice shards that have formed upon the surface of the water that people break through so that they can get their bodies into it. But you hear of the benefits, you see the videos, you, you see the buzz, and this trend spreads more and more. And I mean, you want to try it until you're actually in front of one. And you put the tip of your pinky toe into it, and it shoots a shiver right up your leg. It's different when you're right in front of it. And I'm not trying to minimize anything here. The point is merely things are a lot different when you come face to face with them. Uh, cancer, I mean, we can understand a lot of things from a distance. But it's all much different when it's your own body or it's overtaking the body of someone you love dearly. Uh, you can know it, and then you can really know it. Uh, depression, theoretically, you know it can feel a certain way. Uh, when it's close to home, again, much different. There's a knowledge of it, and then there's a different knowing of it. Wayward child, one way, the pain, it's understandable. A completely other way when it is your own. Series of successive uh, miscarriages. It's one way to know it. And it's an entirely and utterly different way 
of truly knowing it. And so what's going on here? Jesus' death, his life given as an atonement for our sin, the Passover lamb in fullness and not a shadow that we might be protected by his blood. Jesus is now right in front of the reality of it, face to face with it. He wants the cross. He longs for it. I mean, he was eager to eat the Passover with his disciples. He's, he's wanting to give his body and shed his blood, the bread and the cup, so that we might pay, partake of him. He wants the cross. He longs for it. But here it is that it is a different experience for him almost entirely. Mark's account, chapter 14, verse 33, says that Jesus began. Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Something started right at that moment. The original wording of which is often translated sorely amazed because it carries this idea of shock, a, a terrified surprise, a, a bewilderment that somehow as much as Jesus had always known, he is now coming to a place where he will truly know, and it is different. And he's in agony. Now, there are many heroic stories of martyrs who have unflinchingly given up their lives for Jesus. Stephen, in the book of Acts, is an example. He doesn't seem to fear death at all, even while the stones are being thrown at him. There are heroic stories of patriots who have given their lives for country and for freedom very bravely. There are even accounts of criminals who with their obstinate pride refuse to shudder seemingly at all, but rebel even through the capital punishment dealt to them, and they're not sweating blood out of their pores. There are people throughout history who have endured the worst of pains that culminate in physical death, and they don't look like Jesus looks like in this garden. Is Jesus soft? Because look at how he seems to shrink away from what others have not recoiled back from. Is that what's happening here? The fear of physical death is not what Jesus is experiencing in this inner turmoil over uh, bodily torture. That alone is not what he's dreading. Notice how Jesus prays here, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What is this cup? The Bible often refers to a visual of, of a cup, not as physical death, but as something much more than that. Isaiah 51, 7 pictures a cup filled with wrath. It's called the cup of staggering. Jeremiah 25, 15, the cup of the wine of wrath. Habakkuk 2, 16 talks about the cup in the Lord's right hand that brings shame instead of glory. Ezekiel 23, 33 speaks of a cup of horror and desolation. You can just do a concordance search for cup in the Old Testament and find much more passages like this, the cup that Jesus is asking for removal here is a cup of God's wrath against evil and of righteous justice and holy judgment against the sin of humanity. It's, it's a cup of shame and alienation from God. Now, to a degree, we each understand the idea of wrath against sin. We each do. We each have it to varying degrees. All of us do. When we see a crime committed, maybe acid thrown on the body and face of a young woman in front of Alamoana. That happened. You shake your head in disgust. And you want the culprit to experience a righteous judgment. We know the idea. Sometimes, however, we may be more sympathetic if we're guilty of the same or similar. When it comes to sins like greed, if we have that in our own hearts, we don't have the same anger against it. Why? Because we're part of it. Alcoholism, if we have that in our past, we are sometimes more sympathetic to those who are dealing with it now. And in one sense, we become 
incapable, usually, of a purity of righteous indignation because we're compromised by our own sin in our own history. But then every now and then, we'll see something that's not a part of our biography. And we feel that renewed hatred against that which is evil. Let me read this past week of a foster child, a young girl, 10 years old, Waiwa, three adults on trial for her death because they are allegedly uh, to have starved her and beat her and committed unspeakable acts against her in this prolonged period of abuse. And you feel in your heart a kind of wrath brewing because of a hatred of that particular evil. And perhaps it's purer if you aren't guilty of exactly that unlike other sins that we've become numb to because they're more prevalent. And so we can hate sin, and we can understand the idea of wrath against that, which is evil, but, but we don't hate sin like someone who's sinless and utterly pure and, and holy and altogether righteous. We, we don't because we're sinful. I mean, we don't hate sin like we ought to hate sin, but here it is that we have Jesus, and there's this cup in front of him. And the wrath of God against all of that, which is evil, that cup is filled to its brim. And Jesus is going to bear it all upon himself. But he hates it more than any of us because he's sinless. 2 Corinthians 5.21 gives us a deeper understanding of what is face-to-face with Jesus here. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's what's happening. He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, that in some way the Son of God with a cup in front of him will become the very thing he hates most so that that would invite the righteous reaction of wrath from God against the Son, which is something far worse than death. Jesus is going to stand before the holy God to answer for every crime and every heinous act of wickedness committed against him by his people, every action of the will, mind, and heart, every thought, every mixed motive, every decision. I mean, some of these things can paralyze, with, paralyze us with guilt when we, when we feel snippets of it. The, the root cause of his agony is sin, ours, not his own, of which the very same eyes who have looked upon Jesus always, Luke 3, 22, uh, 3.22, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. I mean, those very same eyes will look upon Jesus as if he were the sinners of the world and as if he were sin itself, as if he were a hater of God, the lover of God he is. And it's in this moment that the cross he has longed for and the death he has awaited us so that he might suffer in our place. Though he loves that cross, he hates that cross because it is that all of hell is in this cup and by his very nature, he doesn't want to drink it. Is there any other way? And yet by his loving heart, he knows that he has to because there is no other way. And he reaches for it. Coming face to face with it has changed everything about him into agony. Uh, this is Sinclair Ferguson. Jesus was about to be exposed to the one thing in life he really feared. Not the cruel death, which would end it. He knew he would rise again. It's not just the death. But the indescribable experience of feeling himself to be God forsaken. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Galatians 3.13, he became a curse force. This is not talking merely about physical death. This is speaking about propitiation, that the wrath of God is given to a substitute, that Jesus Christ would bear our sin, condemnation, and wrath. And here it is, Jesus is wrestling. And how does he do that? He does it in prayer. The same kind of prayer he told his disciples to pray in moments like these when faced with temptation to turn this way or that way or to interpret all of these events as anything other than good and loving and kind. Here in Gethsemane, Jesus is wrestling. He, he wants the cup, but he doesn't want the cup. He loves the gospel, but he dreads the gospel. He wants to honor the Father, but he doesn't want to experience the wrath of the Father. He loves purity and holiness, doesn't want to be made sin, and yet he doesn't want to let his people perish. Listen to Charles Spurgeon about this very battle. It was a struggle on a titanic scale as if a Hercules had met another Hercules. Two tremendous forces strove and fought and agonized within the bleeding heart of Jesus. Nothing causes a man more torture than to be dragged here and there with contending emotions as civil war is the worst and cruelest kind of war, so a war within a man's soul when two great passions in him struggle for the mastery and both noble passions too cause a trouble and a distress which none but he that feels it can understand. And therefore, there's this war inside of him that's so taxing that an angel had to come and support him physically, I think. And I really believe otherwise, Jesus would have died here prior to the cross in this garden. So beating upon his body and soul that the little blood vessels underneath the skin begin to pop and blood starts flowing through his sweat glands. Is there any other way? Father, he cries out, and that title makes the pain all the more agonizing, doesn't it? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But what gives to Jesus assurance here in Gethsemane? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There's a submission here in the heart of our Savior that despite what it is that I'm feeling, I trust you more. That even though this is tearing me apart, I believe in you more than I believe in my ability to sort this and that out. That though it seems that my worst nightmares are becoming a reality, I know that you are in control of even this. And the very thing I've dreaded and prayed against, I lay my will down at your feet, O oh God, and I can have peace because your will is greater than mine and your plans are higher and more perfect. And whether I see it now or am incapable of seeing it now, I know when all is said and done, I will not regret your will to be accomplished in my life. And this is the ongoing petition, isn't it? of every true follower of Jesus who taught us himself to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is to be our prayer even in times of most distress. This is to be our cry even when we're so weak that we can't get off of our hands and knees, that I want this with all my heart. But the answer is no, there must be a reason for it. And I trust you. You're the king, I'm not. You're the leader, I'm the follower. You know, perhaps there's uh, nothing more abrasive to today's culture and really every human culture 
than his will over mine. I mean, we're in a world of uh, my will over everything, my feelings, my truth, my will, my body, my choices, which, which is utterly inconsistent with what we see in Jesus the Christ. Listen to J.C. Ryle. Submission of the will like this is one of the brightest graces which can adorn the Christian character. It is one which a child of God ought to aim at in everything if he desires to be like Christ. He who can say from his heart when a bitter cup is before him, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, has attained a high position in the school of God. And so the picture of Jesus in agony, it's not what we're used to, but it shows to us uh, the wickedness of sin, doesn't it? It, doesn't, it makes us hate it more than we did prior to it. It shows to us this picture of Jesus in agony, this love that exists in the heart of our Savior for us. He really, really loves us. It shows to us this completeness of atonement that Jesus has paid it all. He drank this cup to its very dregs, every last drop. And when he cries out on the cross, it is finished. It is really finished. I mean, there's no punishment left for his people, no matter what kind of day you had this week. The wrath of God is satisfied. It's done. There's no more left in the cup for those who believe in him. And it declares that there's no other way for salvation to be accomplished. Otherwise, Jesus would have taken it. There's only one way for our guilt to be acquitted. There's only one way for righteousness to be gifted to us. There's only one way that we could be made new, and that is the sinless one in place of the sinful. It's the Son of God in the place of sinners, and he takes all that is ours onto himself so that we might be given all that is his. It shows to us, really, uh, the necessity of prayer, even in our darkest times, uh, even those places where we think we might die in anguish and pain, uh, discouragement and despair, uh, where we feel the most alone and can't have the thing that we want and are given instead that which we dread, that we know our Savior has been in this very same position, but times a million over in intensity. And he comes to a place of peace because he knows the Father's will is greater than his own, that we may come to the same place of peace through prayer in the same way and walk in Jesus' footsteps. And praise the Lord that this is the case in this agonizing garden experience. Verse 45, and we'll close with this. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And we find here again that same poise and that same selfless love for his followers. Uh, it's back. And, and I think most, uh, most people when enduring this kind of suffering to see people who are supposed to have your back uh, asleep, so to speak, in one of the greatest trials of your own life. I think most of us would feel a little bit of anger stirring in our hearts, a little bit of bitterness brewing within. Are you being serious right now? You can't even stay awake. Look at my skin. I'm sweaty and bloody at the same time. I mean, you guys are supposed to have my back, and we don't find that here. And you think that because of his sinlessness, uh, Jesus wouldn't have compassion on the sinful. You know, sometimes when we look at people who struggle with things that we don't struggle with, we kind of look down upon them because we don't struggle with it. Shoot our guns at them. 
But, but it's precisely the opposite. Luke says Jesus rose from prayer, found them sleeping in that brain. Why? Because they were sorrowful. As if Jesus genuinely understands, you know what? I know you guys have a real burden too. And I know you are exhausted as well. I mean, what in the world? Because, brothers and sisters, Jesus is full of grace. But the same grace does not stay silent in moments of great need. No, he says, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation because that's our worst enemy really, isn't it? And Jesus knows from speaking of a place, from a place of experience, I know you're weak. I know this will be hard on you. I know you're drowsy and full of sorrow. Don't sleep, but rise and pray. And that's the only way that we will believe in and trust in the Lord's will over our own. And when that temptation will no longer have any power over us. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the scene in the garden, Lord, that you um, would help us to see uh, Jesus in ways that we don't always get to see him. And I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would take your word and convict our hearts as to just how much it is you really love us and how much it is that sin is really the worst thing for us and how much it is that we can trust in you and how much it is that Jesus gave himself to us. I pray that by your spirit, because only you can do this, you would make these things so real to us that it would be our ultimate reality more than anything else is. And I pray by your grace and mercy that you would continue to be patient with us and help us to grow. We want to live everything for you, all out for you. And we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.